This, this, this show is brought to you by Safety FM. Tonight, we have a special safety wars. We have my friend, Murray Saverin, finance professor emeritus from Ramapo College right here in New Jersey. He will be discussing the SVB bank collapse and other monetary issues. He has a new book out, From Immigrant to Public Intellectual, an American Story, available on Amazon.com and many other platforms. We also talk about some of the other issues that we face as safety professionals, one of them being environmental social governance documents. Right here, right now on Safety Wars Live. Murray, it's been so long. Much uh, too long, Jim. Much too long. Uh, so let me give a little intro here. I've known Murray since about 1996 or 97, I'm sorry, when he ran for governor of New Jersey. And that's when the first time we met was in uh, then. You probably don't remember it. I have vague memories of it. But then I started working on your, uh, you ran again for office in 2000. Mm-hmm. And I uh, was a volunteer with your campaign, very limited on a very limited uh, basis. And then you ran for Senate a couple of years later, and I was one of your volunteer coordinators for that. And uh, just for a complete uh, disclosure, you ran as a libertarian and as you run for several offices, either as a libertarian or a uh, Republican. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, uh, You've got it down pat, Jim. All right. And I'm doing this from memory, uh, believe it or not. And how you're a professor emeritus at Ramapo College in their finance department, and they have a building named after you too, right? Well, not the building. It's the Sabre Center for Free Enterprise. Um, We were uh, invited by the president at the time in 2007, I think it was, to... uh, to create a, a Sabre Center. And um, my wife and I said, uh, this is a great legacy for us uh, to, br- to give to the college, to uh, give an opportunity for uh, students, the general public, to learn more about the free enterprise system and how it, uh, it's dynamic, it's innovative, it's creative, and, and is responsible for the high living standards we have in America. It didn't happen overnight, and it didn't happen by somebody wishing. It happened because of entrepreneurship. Uh, the three eyes I like to call it, invention, innovation, and investment. When you put all those things together in a free society, you get tremendous economic um, prosperity. Yeah, and no, I agree 100% uh, with that. Uh, I, and I, I tell you, let me share with you a little personal story here. So as a volunteer on uh, your, one of your campaigns, I had uh, left graduate school. I was involved in uh, NJIT at the uh, uh, continuing ed program. And it can, the way it was set up in those days, I think they do it a little bit differently now. Uh, you could go into the continuing ed program and then your transfer into, you can either finish the program or you can transfer into regular graduate school. And what I did was I finished the continuing ed program and you said to me uh, during the campaign, Jimmy, why don't you go back and just go back and get the master's degree? You have like six classes to go. You can finish that. No problem. Right. And and sure enough, what did I do? My first day in graduate school, I called you up and I let you know, took your advice. And here I am. But anyway, now that's my little personal story there. Uh, so you're partly responsible for my success here. 
Well, no, no, your success is your success. I mean, uh, (laughs) I just try to nudge people in a direction that I think that would make them uh, successful. Yes, thank you very much. You have a new new book out, Immigrant to Public Intellectual, an American Story. It's available on Amazon. Murray Saverin uh, is the author and is our guest here, Murray Saverin, S-A-V-R-I-N. Want to tell us a little bit about your book, and then we'll go into what we talked about. What we sure, were going to talk about. Yeah, um, actually, the book has been 25 years in the making since the 97 campaign that uh, thank you for volunteering for that. And um, I had a whole bucket full of articles and other material from the campaign. And my wife said, you got to write this, uh, the story about uh, your campaign, because I was the first third party candidate as a libertarian nominee to uh, raise enough money for matching funds and uh, be in the three debates with uh, Governor Whitman and uh, uh, Jim McGreevy, who was a state senator and a mayor at the time. New Jersey was notorious for dual office holding at the years gone by. And so uh, I, I, I put all the material together. And then I was uh, contacted Michael Harrison, the publisher of Talkers.com, the Bible of Talk Radio, who also has a small boutique publishing uh, firm called uh, Talkers uh, uh, Books. And he said, Murray, you have a more compelling story to talk about than just your campaign, which of course is, was historic. He said, why don't you write an autobiography? So I sat down last summer and in three months, I banged out uh, my life story from the time we came to America in, in uh, August, 1949, when I was a toddler. Uh, my parents were the only uh, ones in their families to survive the Holocaust from their native Poland. And I was born in West Germany in uh, 1946. And I started recounting all the highlights um, and sometimes low light, low episodes of my life um, until it got me to the campaign of uh, 1997. So I go through systematically growing up in New York City, getting married in 1968. Uh, teaching in the New York City public schools, realizing that that was not going to be my uh, long-term career, going to graduate school in 1972 full-time. And along the way, I um, my philosophy changed from being a liberal Democrat uh, of supporting a mild welfare state to uh, realizing that the Great Society program was not going to be sustainable long-term, even though we're still in the Great Society. Right. Uh, moment here in the United States uh, so many decades later. And I started reading up about libertarianism. And um, I read Murray Rothbard's great essay right after Nixon did wage price controls in 1971. And uh, three years later, I met him at um, where he was teaching in Brooklyn Polytech. And I invited him to be on my dissertation committee. And I started learning about Austrian economics and, um, and how Austrian economics helps explain the world we live in from the economic lens. And I, it was just, I immersed myself from 1974 on into the Austrian school. And I used Murray Rothbard's explanation of inflation in his economic treatise, Man, Economy and State, for my dissertation topic of how money is injected to the economy and spreads throughout the banking system and affects prices, production, employment at local economies. And that was the essence of my dissertation. And I got a wonderful note from the University of Chicago a geography professor, because I was in the geography department at Rutgers, saying you, your thesis was a great breakthrough in this whole concept of uh, economic geography from uh, and talking about inflation. So uh, I'm pretty proud of that dissertation. It uh, was a seminal work in uh, in integrating uh, monetary economics and um, geographic principles of diffusion. Uh, in this case, money was being diffused throughout the economy. So to make a very long story short, uh, I got my degree in 81. 
had a few jobs in the private sector in investment analysis, economic research, commercial real estate. And then in 1985, um, I was at the right place at the right time when a finance professor resigned a week before the semester began. And I was asked to uh, take his position and that emergency hire turned into a tenure track position and a 35 year career in finance, even though I don't have a degree in finance, but my uh, work experience gave me the tools to teach finance at the uh, undergraduate level. And it was just a great career, Jim, to be able to uh, give young people the skills they need to be successful business decision makers. And uh, one of the last things I did for 10 years was I taught the financial history of the United States, where everything really comes together for the students of how our financial system evolved and why we've had these crises throughout the 19th century and the 20th century. And of course, uh, ending with the Great Recession of 2008. And then going into what we're going into now, I'm sure that would be included in uh, your class here, Absolutely. you know, and we uh, wanted to talk about that. But, you know, there's what I wanted to talk to you about, because we're hearing all different types of stuff on the uh, on the uh, uh, mainstream media and the mainstream news, the alternative news on what happened to Silicon Valley Bank and now reportedly 190 other banks, uh, according to one article I've read with uh, you know, with uh, when they put them through the stress program and the models and 190 other banks, some of them big, some of them regional, most of them regional ha are may go into the same situation as uh, Silicon Valley Bank. Based on you, well, your opinion, what exactly happened here as far as we know? I know there's an investigation with this. Jim, th this is a, a story that's been in the making for literally more than 200 years. Uh, several things have come together here in, in Silicon Valley, which is, I guess, the tip of the iceberg, uh, because uh, we have a banking system that is unsustainable. It's based upon fractional reserves. So when you put a dollar in your checking account, the bank puts 10%, roughly 10% in reserve and uh, and lends out the other 90 or buys assets for the other 90 in order to make money. So the bank operates on a very flimsy way. And that was shown in the media. If you remember the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, when there was a run on the Bailey uh, Savings Alone at the end right. of the movie. And um, people are going to get their money out. And uh, George Bailey, portrayed by Jimmy, uh, Jim, uh, Jimmy Stewart, says, we don't have the money. It's in Joe's house because we lent him money to buy his house. So this is the flaw in banking in general. And periodically we're going to get these problems in the banking system because what svb did is that since in silicon valley a lot of their depositors were startups startups as you know get money from venture capital and that money right. gets deposited in the bank so they can pay their workers and other expenses that they have and sometimes they were putting in a lot more than the 250,000 maximum that was insured so some uh, companies um, may have tens of millions of dollars from venture capital deposited in the bank. What did the bank do with that money? Well, the government says, our federal government says, and it's wise uh, view of the world, why don't you invest in um, long-term treasuries because they're the safest investment. And at that time, they were only paying 2% interest. Well, we know what happened two years ago, inflation started to accelerate. And so as inflation accelerated, the value of these long-term bonds go down. For example, Let's say you buy a bond for $1,000, and at that time it was paying 2%, so it was paying $20 a year in interest. Well, when rates get jacked up, 
and rates are now 4%, the value of that bond goes down by 50%, Jim. Right. And so, so the company's balance sheet is really out of whack. So a $1,000 bond that they bought at par uh, is now worth $500. So that means the equity of, of, the, of, of the bank is now a lot less than the drop in the assets of the bank. So you have a tremendous solvency issue. What would happen is for some reason, um, people got wind of this because we know it when interest rates go up, asset prices go down in terms of bonds and people got nervous about SVB's balance sheet and they started taking money out of the bank, a classical bank run. The bank didn't have the money. They had to sell off some of the bonds at huge losses. And so the, the bank basically became insolvent shareholders uh, went to, to zero, the stock went to zero from $200 a share, and you had the perfect storm. Now, what caused all this? Well, it's the Fed's easy money policy, as we know from the Austrian school analysis of the business cycle, that when you pump money in, depress interest rates, asset prices go up, and, um, and that's what happened uh, for the past 10 years since the Great Recession. And so with banks, they're just an accident waiting to happen. And um, those of us that have been critical of factional reserve banking, uh, critical of fiat money, critical of the Fed manipulating interest rates, this was the perfect storm, Jim. And we'll see how many other regional banks who have a lot of their assets in long-term bonds, uh, whether they can survive, uh, especially if people get nervous and take their money out of the bank. Now, if you have up to 250,000, FDIC insures you. What happened at SV Bank SVB Bank is that uh, uh, Powell and Janet Yellen, the Secretary of the Treasury, Powell, the Chairman of the Federal Reserve, said all the all the depositors will be made whole. So that limit of two hundred fifty thousand has gone by the wayside, which shows you the moral hazard of banking today. When the government it was is not supposed to insure deposits above two fifty, but they're doing it anyway. So it just shows you that bankers can engage in risky behavior, and it's ironic that the the risky behavior they engaged in was buying government bonds, supposedly the most the most safe and secure asset in the world. And this is the great irony of of where we are today, Jim, is that everything is upside down that what, what, what is supposed to be safe is no longer safe in terms of uh, uh, value because of, uh, because of inflation and the Fed's uh, uh, attempt to cool inflation down from its 9% uh, peak of last year. So uh, from my perspective, Jim, uh, we need to reform the banking system. And I've been writing about this on my Substack column at murraysabron.substack.com. We need to do away with fraction reserve banking. The way we handle that is all demand deposits should have 100% reserves. And then if the banks want to make out loans for six months, a year, two years, they should have a time deposit, a CD for that time uh, length. And this way you match up the time of the asset with the time of the liability. And you, and then the question is, what if the, uh, the borrower from the bank defaults? Well, hopefully they'll put up collateral, they'll put up collateral if they're uh, a small company, or if it's a large company, um, um, there should be not a problem with the default. But if there is a default, the question is who gets the haircut? Is it the shareholders? Is it the depositors who bought the CD? Right. So we need base reform of the banking system. And there's no one in Washington talking like that because we know, Jim, the bankers love the current system because they get a government bailout and their leverage. So they make a lot of money on the depositors because they don't, they're paying virtually no interest on, on demand deposits. My financial literacy compared to most people is not there right now. My understanding is that in 1929, or I believe it was 29, when they had the major 
crash of everything, right? right? It was on the run on the banks, or might have been the early 30s. Right. Uh, it was linked to one person in one bank that had heard a rumor that the bank was insolvent and they decided to make a huge withdrawal and it uh, went viral, for lack of a better word, using a modern word. And basically, that's what started the run on the banks. I have heard that with SVB, because most of the depositors, most of their customers were these startups, the, uh, there were very lack of homogeneity here with, uh, I, I don't know if that's right, where everybody had the same outlook, everybody came from the same place, that a similar thing might have happened here. Uh, have you heard anything about that? Yeah, uh, from what I read is that Peter Thiel, the co-founder of PayPal, uh, was getting very nervous about the bank. I think he had $50 million in the bank, whether he took it out, because right now, Jim, you could press a button, go online and, and, and transfer your money out of the bank at, 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 with no problem. The question is, um, all our money is basically digital today. So again, every the, the point I want to make is every bank in America is susceptible to a run because they don't have all the cash they say they have, they need in order to fulfill depositors' withdrawals. And this is the, the, the Achilles heel of the banking system because banking is the only industry in the country that literally can go bankrupt overnight. The retailers can't go bankrupt, the food stores can't go bankrupt. It's the banks because they don't have the, the, uh, the inventory, if you will, to meet the depositors' needs. And so that's the, that's the, that's the reason that the banks are so, uh, need government insurance or want government insurance because they, if they operated in a free market, they wouldn't have fractional reserve banking. My listeners out there might say, well, why are we going into this financial stuff and all this other stuff that we already discussed here right so far? Part of what my company does and part of what most health and safety professionals do is disaster preparation, disaster response, disaster preparation. We're focused often on you know, the physical kind of stuff, you know, health and safety, OSHA regulation, environment, all that stuff. But this is another part of disaster preparation is financial with everything. And it, ha and it has more to do than saving more than you're spending sort of stuff, right? But not spending money you don't have, not going to, it has more to do with that. Here we have a huge banking system problem that needs to be addressed somehow, some way here, and it's not being addressed. And this has caused a disaster here with the inflation, with the access to money. I, I mean, I talking to other uh, small business owners who have never had to had a hold on any checks and uh, their entire run as a small business owner. And now all of a sudden, every check that we're depositing from a over a certain amount is being put on hold for two weeks. Yep. Right. Uh, what does that indicate to me? There's not enough money in the system. Is that what's the, and they're waiting for things to catch up uh, with themselves. That's what, how I read that. And I know. And, I, I, and there are indicators of this back in January, by the way, uh, because well, that's when all these uh, banking policies change was January. Well, th th this is why um, uh, economists who've been looking at these problems over the last uh, 200 years have, have realized that fractions are banking is inherently unstable it's unsustainable and uh, as murray rothbard pointed out in a talk that i heard him give many decades ago is that we were on the verge of getting rid of fractional reserve banking when we had the bank runs in the early 30s 
under the Hoover administration. And then when Roosevelt came in in 1933, after he was elected in a landslide in 1932, he, uh, he got FDIC, he closed the banks for a few days, and they said, what can we do to make sure the uh, people don't uh, run on the banks? So they came up with FDIC at a limit of 2,500 back then, $2,500. Now we're up to $250,000 as a limit. And so- Hold on, let me cut you off there. Uh, You just said this uh, five minutes ago, maybe. Now there's no limit to that at at this point. Now there's no limit, effectively. Go ahead, I'm sorry. This is why government creates moral hazards throughout society. In banking, we see it. We're seeing it right in front of our eyes, and and people in Washington are not addressing it. The average person uh, doesn't know because they don't know the intricacies of banking. We see it in your area, in the environmental area. We talked before we got on the air. People are building in high-risk areas. The Jersey Shore is southwest Florida, where I'm living now. People are building right up to the ocean. And when you're in a hurricane zone, Jim, the last thing you want to do is build right next to the ocean. And we saw pictures of Fort Myers Beach, Jim. You've seen pictures of that. It got totally destroyed because of the Hurricane Ian at the end of September. My sister-in-law lived on Sanibel far from the ocean or relatively far from the ocean and her house was under several feet of water and fortunately she evacuated before the hurricane hit thank but god this is the moral hazard that uh, governments create uh, with uh, a flood insurance because private insurers will uh, deem it too risky to insure houses along the jersey shore or anywhere else uh, where there is um, a potential a weather incident that could wipe out a whole community and so we need to do something about risk management and that's the field that you're in to some degree that's the field right. i'm in with a, a financial risk management is how do you deal with this and the answer jim is property rights and free enterprise free markets because there are ways of dealing with that same thing with health insurance is a big moral hazard because we're insuring every aspect of uh, medical expenses when that's not the purpose of insurance as you well know it's only for the big ticket items that you may be uh, uh, have to pay when you have either a major cancer issue or a heart issue or or a neurological issue and even those issues jim from the research i've done in writing two books on healthcare is that there are surgery centers like the surgery center of oklahoma which charges a fraction of what hospitals do for the same service and this and better quality or the same quality so there are free market approaches to dealing with issues but we know jim people in washington and state capitals they want power and control and therefore they impose these rules and regulations which are counterproductive and raise the cost of doing business and that's and with the fed creating money as it has nonstop for the last uh, 10 years to deal with the financial crisis of 2008 prices have gone through the roof whether it's food automobile prices jim the average car price in america sold today is nearly fifty thousand dollars i remember not too long ago it broke twenty thousand dollars and now we're at fifty thousand dollars so it just shows you what happens when you create money housing prices are just out of sight rents are out of sight and the average family uh is living paycheck to paycheck more more and more average families are living paycheck to paycheck which tells you something is terribly wrong in our system and that and that has to do with the top-down approach the quasi-central planning approach from the federal reserve the federal government and all these regulatory agencies who think they know how to govern how to um, uh, plan for business uh, people that you deal with that uh, business people have an obligation to their shareholders if 
if they have a public company, or to themselves as uh, as owners of capital and entrepreneurs. They're the ones that have to make the decisions that's best for their workers and their, most importantly, their customers. No, I couldn't have said it any better. Uh, I mean, it's, now on the health and safety end, what, what I deal with, you see that type of uh, behavior with uh, workplace injuries, for example, uh, where you have workers' comp uh, thrown in there, and the company says, look, if uh, someone's going to get hurt, what do I care? I have workers' mm-hmm. comp. Uh, that'll cover things. And then they don't realize that their workers' comp coverage is going to go uh, skyrocket. But what's their solution to that? Their solution to that is uh, I'm just going to start a new company. Uh, there are, no, now, your uh, huge company isn't going to do that. But you get all these small business owners. That's exactly what they're going to do is just start up a new company, start all over again. What do I care? with this and it even gets into the running of the company where you have uh, people in charge of the work, supervisors and foremen, what happens when they uh, get so- when someone gets hurt? They don't care, it's not coming out of their pocket. Yeah, they may get fired, they'll get rehired somewhere else if they're quote unquote competent. Now you're left with the workers getting hurt and everything else and everything just is a cycle there. And what we're trying to do is coaching companies along saying, look, you can't do this. You're losing money. And if you could, uh, like the best thing that ever came out that OSHA came out with was a website called Safety Pays, where Mm -hmm. it uh, uses insurance industry data to show you, you get an injury. This is how much it's going to cost. Right. And when uh, when the companies see that, it's like one of the best sales tools that you have. You have an injury, and basically this is going to cost your company $30,000 $30,000 or more, whatever it is. Uh, you know, there, uh, there's companies out there that uh, call me up. Oh, we want to do business with you. We want training and everything else. And, uh, you know, I, and I said, well, who's your consultant? And make a long story short, they're, uh, they, they don't realize and their attorney doesn't tell them this, this is going to cost them a million dollars for a fatality that's how much a fatality costs to a business and that's what you know and that's assuming that they don't get sued for some reason so that's what i try to do is try to do this internally if you're going to have the government regulating all of this stuff all the way vertically integrating itself it's not you know, you, you get a lot of fraud and everything else which is what i want to talk about next in the professional safety community communication and planning are just a few keys to your program success the question many practitioners have is where do i start dr jay allen the creator of the safety fm platform and host of the rated r safety show has built a global foundation to help you along the way go to safetyfm.com and listen to some of the industry's best and most involved professionals including blaine hoffman with the safety pro sam goodman with the hop nerd sheldon primus with the safety consultant jim pozell with safety wars emily elrod with unapologetically bold and many others as individuals we can do great things but as a team we become amazing dial into safetyfm.com today and surround yourself with a powerful force of knowledge and support
Is your safety training old, stale, and hackneyed? Is your safety trainer still preaching a warped version of behavior-based safety? How about safety training that actually addresses your hazards in your workplaces and is not standardized baloney from 25 years ago? Contact the Safety Wars team at safetywars.com or call Jim Polzel at 845-269-5772. Remember, if you're receiving this message, you are the solution to unsafe workplaces. OSHA recordables, first aid cases, catastrophic losses. You want answers? So do I. This is Jim Polzel with Safety Wars. That's my daddy! That's my daddy! This is a story. I uh, wanted to talk about environmental social governance, ESG. Right. All right. Unbeknownst to me, I, I get home last night. I finally got around to reading the mail. The uh, Professional Safety Journal, which is a, a publication of the American Society of Safety Professionals, this month, or I should say next month, like it's April's edition, they have, no, I'm sorry, this is this month's edition. It came in the mail last night. And they have a five-page article on environmental social governance. And a lot of safety professionals, I'm going to describe how they describe it, a lot of safety professionals get involved with this and we have to write policies or at least help HR human resources write policies on this. So what are we talking? An ESG environmental, right? It's uh, environmental compliance, energy usage, waste management, and our favorite topic recently, greenhouse gas emissions and carbon footprint with social that's the whole diversity, equity, and inclusion policies, including pay equity, human rights, right, commitment to the community, uh, and employee training and governance, meaning business ethics, data privacy, information security, business continuity, purchasing and finance, quality management, board capability, all of that. ESG. Now, with Silicon Valley Bank, the bring Back again, there has been accusations mm-hmm. of environmental social governance had a role to play in this, number one, with the whole thing, number one. And uh, number two was, from my research with this, uh, companies who totally embrace this whole concept, they're middle performers. They're not going to be a high-end performer. They're not going to be a low-end performer, but they're going to be somewhere in the middle with uh, rankings and everything. Now, would you like, uh, what do you have to say about this with environmental social governance? Yes. Well, I, I, I think everything. we have to focus on what a purpose of a business is. The purpose of the business is to serve customers. And if they do it well, Jim, as you well, as you know, they're going to make profits. And if they don't do it well, they're going to suffer losses. That's what Mises talked about, um, the father of Austrian economics of the 20th century, that uh, the business is pretty simple. Uh, you've got to f- figure out how much value, or should put it this way, are consumers getting value for the things that you're offering in the marketplace? And if consumers uh, realize that you're offering value, you're going to make a ton of money. I mean, this is uh, companies uh, have been around for ages. Some of the new companies, um, the Apples of the world that have been around, what, 50 years or so, uh, the Microsofts of the world, uh, the Googles, they're making money hand over fist because uh, people like what they have to offer. If they didn't like what they had to offer, they wouldn't be uh, buying their products at the prices that the goods are being sold for, the services are being sold for. Those other things are really a sideshow, part of the progressive uh, 
uh, paradigm that uh, somehow businesses have to be engines of social change and have to have all these um, policies in place for equity and inclusion and all these other things that have nothing to do with satisfying consumers. I mean, th this is the thing that I guess rankles me as a a retired business professor is that you, you, you go into the classroom and you, and you instill into students, what is the purpose of a business? And you get to the point where they have to realize it's not about making money. Money is the residual of serving consumers. And how do you serve consumers? Well, you've got to be an efficient producer. You've got to treat your, your employees as well as you can so they are productive. You got to make sure that they're healthy because we now have employer-based insurance for the most part. And so you want to make sure your employees are healthy because uh, we know that uh, uh, absenteeism is a, is a big problem for um, uh, employers, the businesses. So all the things you need to do for good uh, HR and good uh, management is to be efficient and uh, the profits will roll in. All these other things about climate, I mean, my goodness, uh, we, you, know, you and I talked about this uh, uh, before the show began the climate has been changing for millions and millions of years human right. activity is, is minuscule compared to the natural phenomena that we've seen um, when i taught at rampo college there was a huge boulder near the parking lot in front of the business school and one day i asked students do you know how that got there that got there from the ice age when the when the uh, ice receded it left the uh, the scrapings uh at, at uh, Mawa, New Jersey, and other parts, Rockland County, you name it, all of these boulders and lakes are the result of the ice receding 14,000 years ago. And so we know that the climate is changing uh, and it'll continue to change long before, uh, long after we're gone because that's the nature of the phenomenon called planet Earth. And so when people think that we are responsible for all the problems, that it's just amazing that they don't see the history of the planet. The other thing that really annoys me, and you could probably address this better since you have a, a much broader science background than I do, where is it written that CO2 is a pollutant? Because I learned in, in eighth grade science that without photosynthesis, the planet would die basically because how do we get vegetation and growing our food if the, plant, if the plants didn't have CO2? So to reduce CO2 means that the planet's going to die eventually because there wouldn't be any vegetation left. Well, the atmosphere is constantly changing. What I figured, what I found out uh, about two or three months ago was when the dinosaurs were here and before then, uh, now you see all these sci-fi movies where people travel back in time, like Land of the Lost yeah. was one that comes to mind where they go back in time and the dinosaurs. You'd probably die within about five minutes and body cannot handle that atmosphere right you're uh, going to get uh immediate uh uh issues uh, right off the bat is what i've heard now how long you're going to live for i don't know but you know you're you know we wouldn't be there uh too long but what i uh, no quick story i was in uh teaching a class in Perthamboy, new jersey and this subject came up during one of the breaks and i said to him you know how far the like the last uh you know how far the last during the last ice age the glaciers went? They're like, no. I said, okay, look out the window and what do you see there? You see the Raritan Bay and the Raritan River, right? They said, yeah, that's where where they know it ended, roughly right around here. That's where the uh, where the glaciers are now, somewhere up in Canada, Greenland, something like that. All right. So we've and the Jersey Shore was ninety to one hundred and twenty miles out to sea. All right, from where it is today right by the continental shelf where people go fishing out there right a lot of times that's where this was 
and without uh, factories, without cars, without everything else that's involved in there, now you have we have what we have today, right? The earth warm. The other thing is we had a guest on last night uh, uh, from, uh, I interviewed her from the Creative Society. Her name is Anastasia. I'm not even gonna attempt to pronounce her last name, all right, uh, from Russia, where there is a, uh, a theory out there that blames the current climate change where it's more geologic than it is uh, emissions from uh, factories in our sure. carbon footprint. And she has evidence, and it's published on, uh, you know, volcanism would be, no, that's nothing to do with Star Trek, guys. <laughs> volcanism, meaning uh, volcanic activity, yeah. would be, uh, is responsible for that uh, thing. You know, it's a very, it's like with everything, like with the electric cars is another example. The elect, uh, with all this uh, solar power and everything else, there's costs associated to electric cars that go beyond the input of the energy, all right? So right now, if they were going to go, uh, um, from the research I've, uh, had, I've done, let's say that you're going to go and use the entire planet's capacity to make solar panels today, all right? You were able to mine that, and then tomorrow, everybody has so solar panels, you're able to max it out. You would only have enough materials to supply energy for the earth for 15 years until they have to be replaced. So that's not really a sustainable solution right. with this. Uh, well, there are other alternatives we won't go into, but what we see is the small business owners having to write, uh, let's say you wanna do business with a large company, I'm not gonna mention the names, they're, are, they're the companies that you've heard of, all right, that everyone's heard of, they're household names. You have to come up with an ESG statement, yeah. Some of it makes sense. We understand with like environmental, it costs money to dispose of waste, especially hazardous waste. So, okay, we're going to reduce our waste. That make good business decision. Uh, energy usage, another one, right? You want to reduce energy usage on everything because you, you know, that's lowers your cost, right? So that might be worth it depending on what you're doing, right? Uh, with certain things. Again, you have a return on investment and everything else as which escapes most people's thinking here. If you've never run a business, you want to you want to pay off the bills in three to five years, right? You don't want to be uh, 25 years, 30 years down the line, and you're still uh, paying off financing and everything else associated with a decision. That's horrible, right? And we understand like with human rights, right? With social things, I, I think I would hope it's obvious to most people that having uh, uh, slavery is wrong. So we have to include stuff like we're not going to participate in human trafficking, uh, slavery, and uh, holding people's passports is a big one, right? So you uh, companies in other countries, they you go to work at, at that company and they take your passport. We understand that. And they're paying market rates for things and you know, uh, market rates and some pay equity with that, you know, up to a, you know, with that. And I don't know. We understand that. Right. Some of the stuff we know there's the diversity, equity and inclusion. I hear complaints all the time with that because the people making those decisions are not uh, are not business savvy. They're not business people usually. Right. With that. And then governance is another one. Right. 
okay, we have to have some type of uh, business continuity plans, things of that, and some ethics we may have. We understand that. But it's getting, it seems to be getting amped up more and more and more and more here. And I don't know what the value is long term, if it's even sustainable, uh, because these are forced relationships. Yep. They're not organic relationships. Right. Right. An organic relationship, we know we know that comes about naturally. Forced is command and control. I don't think that's getting us to a good place. Jim, just let me piggyback on that diversity issue. And uh, when I retired in July of 2020 and uh, we attended the last faculty meetings, um, I looked around to, and even before then, I looked around of uh, the faculty of the business school at Round Poe College. And it was the most diverse, I think, of any business school in the country. I mean, you had folks who either were born overseas or are first generation immigrants from every part of the globe literally every part of the globe china korea south america central america east europe west europe uh, we even had a canadian believe it or not we had a canadian <laughs> faculty member so it just shows you that organically these things play out beautifully without this top-down approach saying you have to have such and such people from this part of the world and when i started teaching it uh, in the business school 35 years ago jim I think there were uh, most of the faculty were white males. I think there were three or four females. And today, I think uh, the business faculty are 50% females. So again, you don't have to have this top down approach for diversity. It happens organically over time because um, look at professional sports. There's no diversity in professional sports from what I see. It's based upon the best players and the best players happen to be Hispanic and black in professional sports. Well, so, talking about the environmental safety field here, right? Uh, I, I have an interview coming up from uh, I, the woman I recorded. Her name escapes me. She's a member of CFACT. Uh, she's a paid, which is a uh, organ, another uh, organization out there. Uh, but she, her job at the organization is to promote environmentalism and safety in the African-American community and other, uh, no, for lack of a better word, minority communities. Back when I got into the industry 30 some years ago, uh, where I went to uh, undergrad, Stockton State College, now Richard Stockton University of New Jersey, uh, there there were no African-Americans in the, in the uh, uh, program. I went to NJIT for graduate school 10 years later, there were basically no African-Americans in the program. Now you have African-Americans. I teach over at another university in New Jersey. You have African-Americans in the program. You have Latinos in the environmental programs uh, communicating with their, uh, you know, with their communities on environmental hazards. Flint, Michigan is a perfect example with the lead in the drinking water. Now Mississippi is another great uh, thing with water shortages and things of that nature. And they're talking about things in their community and it's more organic than anything rather than a forced type of uh, situation. And I think it's a good thing to have all this uh, diversity to talk about environmental issues, legitimate environmental issues, pollution, over uh, use of land, right? Uh, uh, no, uh, not, uh, no, uh, an another one, hunting and fishing and everything, which we have property rights assigned to that type of thing. And then form of a hunting or fishing license, that's you're assigning a property right on that. We have that. That's all a great thing. And I don't, you know, it's great in a way to see this because you have a different point of view. But these are the communities that are having the biggest types of environmental problems 
in their communities from everyday things, from pollution uh, to uh, well, healthcare, right? Certain things are caused by healthcare and everything else. Now, as opposed to the city of uh, Philadelphia's approach, which just write everyone the eighteen thousand dollar check who's uh, pregnant. Uh, I don't know if you read about that. That was that came yeah, out like three I, days I, ago. I saw that, Jim. Again, th- th- this is so bizarre that uh, the concept that government uh, bureaucrats, politicians, and um, their uh, their supporters in the private sector know how to run a twenty trillion dollar economy is just is just uh, hubris. I mean, you can't do it. The Soviet Union couldn't do it, and they had a lot of smart people there. Uh, you, uh, collectivism doesn't work. It's it's not an ideological concept. It's a it's a practical concept. I mean, free markets are the best way for people to uh, provide goods and services that people want. It's that simple and. Uh, Again, with a regime, with a legal structure to protect property rights, to have strict liability, businesses will be on the straight and narrow. And if they commit a tort, uh, you have the redress in the courts. That's what the government courts are supposed to do, is to give people a chance for uh, getting a redress of a a grievance against the company that may do them some harm. So again, all the institutions are in place, except we're going off the rails with all this. uh, People have this idea that somehow uh, there's a lack of diversity in our society, which is just not true. I mean, it's just not true from my experience and from the reality of uh, uh, different fields. Now, these things have evolved over time. Uh, when I watch CNBC, it's amazing how many women CEOs there are now in America and around the world compared to what it was 20, 30 years ago. So if these things take time. It doesn't happen overnight. And, um, and uh, a laissez-faire economy, which we're very far from, is not the problem facing the world today. It's the lack of laissez-faire, I would say, that's causing these issues to bubble up because we have a flawed banking system. We had a a flawed uh, tax system. We have a flawed uh, government spending regime. In fact, Jim, I I, I made the point, one of the problems we have in America is we have a major constitutional crisis that no one wants to address. Namely, the government is spending money that's not authorized under Article One, Section Eight of the Constitution. And as a as an immigrant who who became a citizen in 1959, and I raised my hand to uh, protect and defend the Constitution, I've been sounding this alarm for many many years, uh, going back to 1995 when my book on how to create a tax free America was was published. So. Uh, there are people who understand the issue, except the mainstream media are discounting them and think that they're Neanderthals because a modern society needs all this government regulation. But uh, property rights are the key, Jim. When you have well-defined property rights, uh, pollution is minimized because uh, you've committed a tort when you when you uh, pollute someone else's property. Now, the air becomes a bit trickier, as you well know, but even there, you have to demonstrate that what somebody is emitting from a factory is causing you personal harm or a community uh, harm, and you can do a class action suit to deal with that. You don't need regulation, per se, to deal with it. You just need to show harm in a court of law that there should be damages awarded to you because of someone's egregious behavior. Well, what I see also is uh, for the exposure standards, uh, for example. Uh, so just a little bit of background. The government only uh, regulates less than a thousand uh, contaminants when you consider all the EPA. Uh, this is, has to do with air, all right? Uh, what it has to do with uh, 
no, uh, the OSHA exposure limits, the EPA exposure limits, and some of the other ones. Well, guess what? We're dealing with uh, East Palestine, Ohio, where there are a lot more uh, exposure standards out, uh, exposures out there than just a thousand, probably. Uh, and the other thing is this: most of these exposure standards are developed uh, from 1960s era data, and to update any of them is a Herculean task. Uh, right. Uh, no, it takes 15, 10 to 15 years to update any of them uh, with the government regulation. So it's very slow out there, uh, very slow out there to get things changed here. So is it really the best avenue? I know that's a debate in the industry that has to happen. Is this really the best avenue to do uh, 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 health and safety in all the time? Some maybe yes, maybe no. I don't know. Uh, you know. With that, that's you know, that's a debate, ongoing debate that we're not going to solve here. But now uh, with uh, East Palestine, now you're dealing with, with indoor air quality, mm. and there's really no governing body on most of the things in that they're seeing there. Their main contaminants are vinyl chloride. There's no exposure standard for inside a building for vinyl chloride uh, in a home setting. Now there, there are ways to get there. Right. If you're a toxicologist to get there, but there's, you know, what do you do? You end up having to do what you're saying, go to court. And uh, that's a very, no, that there's some problems with that. And the legal system is backed up for years. Sure. With that, uh, it's a nightmare. You know, any comments on that? Uh, what would, you know, my whole solution out there with East Palestine is that the railway really, and this is what it's probably going to happen. They're probably going to have to go in under eminent domain, the government and buy out all the properties because yeah. they're, this is not going to be cleaned up from what I can see to anyone's satisfaction uh, with this. And I don't know if I would, again, you're destroying things uh, in the market. You no. Know, would you want to go in there and buy a house? I don't think so. Yeah, uh, well, you know, this, this is a perfect example of strict liability that the railroad is responsible for making the people whole again uh, and uh, paying for the cleanup and paying for any damages that the people uh, uh, have have uh, have had because of the uh, trail de train derailment. And um, again, you need good environmental people to come in there and say, what is the reality of the damages in the water, in the air uh, uh, and uh, and take care of that? Uh, um, on a personal level, um, we've been buying uh, this product called Clearly Filtered, and um, it gets rid of all the contaminants in your um, in your um, tap water. And I, I just got an email from them since I'm I'm a customer, and they said that their product would get rid of uh, the vinyl chloride from the water very easily. I hope you look into it. It's, it's, it's right. a great product. We've been using it for at least ten years now. What happens is they you know uh, they can't really guarantee it's going to do it because they cannot. Uh, they can't guarantee what people are going to put through it, for example. Right. That's a market-based thing. You didn't have to go out there and buy it. Did the research, I'm sure. I know you. You did the research. You found out, hey, this would be it. We're, we don't like maybe some of the things in our water and the water reports that we're getting back from wherever we're getting the water from. Now we have a market-based solution on here with this. Perfect example of what we're talking about. The it's other great. thing is you're not getting all the information on what's in your water. Right. As I tell people, if they're doing work like on your water system, guess what? You probably shouldn't drink the water for two or three days yeah. afterwards. I'm sorry. That's the way it is. 
uh, because they could they do the testing at the plant. They don't do the testing at your house. So no, it's a, this is part of the uh, three eyes that I talked about earlier. Is that it's uh, invention, innovation, and investment. I mean, if you have a great idea, which is what a, a theme of my teaching for for thirty five years. I tell students, if you have one good idea, not a great idea, just one good idea in America, you could become hugely successful. And if you have a great idea, you can become basically a billionaire in America because the market is so large. And if the product is of, of, of great value to consumers and you can produce it in a very cost-effective manner, my goodness, uh, it's endless in terms of what you can achieve as an entrepreneur in America. And I think that's the success, uh, that's the, the real success of America or the is the strength of America is is the entrepreneurship, the men and women who've invented stuff over the past 200 plus years and commercialized it. And uh, we're doing uh, something that we couldn't do 25, 30 years ago at virtually no cost. No, our economy pretty much took off. When, mm-hmm. when, when Is there any truth to that? Or is that just a myth or a misunderstanding I, I of history? I, I don't recall seeing any of that in, in the literature. I mean, I'd be, right. be wrong because obviously I haven't read everything about the early American uh, business practices, but there was some regulation from my, what I remember. Uh, the blue laws, for example, that we have in New Jersey and especially in Bergen County, the reason they were called blue laws is they were written on blue paper and you couldn't, um, you couldn't uh, sell things on uh, the Sabbath, which was Sunday. So there was this uh, and then of course some towns had prohibition on alcohol because alcohol was considered sinful to drink alcohol so there was some regulation in the early days of uh, uh, colonial america and uh, also in the early days of the republic uh, but those are minor compared to uh, the money and banking issue which right. permeated american uh, history in, in the in the uh, 19th century as as one of the uh, overriding uh, uh, conflicts we had between the people who wanted quote hard money uh, gold and silver as the preeminent money and those that wanted to inflate with paper even in, in the colonies the Ma- massachusetts uh, bay colony printed up money in order to um, uh, pay the soldiers who were doing raids into um, into canada so again the history of, of america is really rich in uh, understanding how people made decisions that were so bad for the average family, so bad for the for the uh, community at large, that um, looking through America through the lens of uh, money and banking and finance and business uh, really shows you how this country, through all the faults that we had uh, throughout history, is resilient. Is still uh, there's enough economic freedom that uh, entrepreneurs can can achieve great heights in every sector of the economy, whether it's in uh, uh, retailing whether it's in uh, uh, commodities or uh, uh, transportation or uh, or uh, entertainment or resorts and things like that uh, american entrepreneurship is is second to none in the world and uh, and the, the people in charge uh, in washington that they, they don't appreciate that jim that's the yeah. that's the takeaway i i have from they really think that the economy is sort of on autopilot and that all you have to do is turn a few dials in washington and it'll make things better that's not the way it works it takes a lot of work and energy to build construction when i was a little kid when we moved from manhattan to the bronx in 1953 i was in the moving truck with my father as a six-year-old drive in the moving truck going up first avenue and i saw the empire state building jim in 1953 and my mouth opened up i said how do you build something like that 102 stories as a little kid you're amazed when you see something like that and construction to me is is one of the great achievements of the of of human uh, civilization in fact um 
uh, one of my favorite shows that I watch on TV is How It's Made. In other words, yes. uh, showing yep. you how, how, how products get to the marketplace and all the investment that takes place to make a simple item, whether it's a, a pencil, as Leonard Reed uh, famously wrote, an eye pencil from the Foundation for Economic Education, right. uh, gasoline in our car. You know what it, the infrastructure takes to get gasoline in our car? Billions of dollars of investment. Oh, and, I know. I was in the oil industry for many years. Yeah, <laughs> and I mean, the chemical industry. Uh, the, the other show that we watch on the History Channel is the, the Food That Built America, and something like that. Um, uh, they have all these shows, uh, the toys and uh, the construction. Uh, America has just been one gigantic enterprise of men and women entrepreneurs uh, innovating and creating. And uh, we are the beneficiaries of their legacy. And it's unfortunate that the politicians are undermining that with really dumb policies. There's no other way I can say it, Jim. There's no polite way of saying it. I guess that's probably the most polite way I can say it because uh, this is a family show, right? And, yeah, uh, well, uh, we edit certain things out, as I told you, you know? Yeah. No, but, <laughs> Why don't we try but, but that? We go easy, <laughs> you know? You go to the big box stores and you see all the products that are there. I mean, think of the logistics to get those goods into the stores. And Amazon, the logistics for Amazon is remarkable. You order something in the morning and the next day it's delivered to your door. You couldn't do that years ago. It didn't happen years ago. So I ask this of every guest that I have. Right, pretty much every guest. It's the same question. Where do you see us in five to 10 years with what we discussed here with the e, uh, Silicon Valley Bank, ESG, and everything else? What I see is there's going to be a huge pushback on a lot of this stuff, uh, especially once uh, if we get honest investigations here uh, with this, uh, because we can't go on. We can't go on this way without it being extremely uh, painful uh, in the end. I mean, my opinion was when I ran for office in 2009 and I spoke to you in 2009, this, this relatively could have been fixed relatively painlessly in right. 2009. So it would have been painful, but now this is like a root, gonna be like a root canal without Novocaine. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I'm a, of the opinion that if, as long as we're on this road that's be, that began with the uh, Federal Reserve creation in 1913 and the income tax and, and the Great Society programs and all the other spending programs, we, we are headed for, I think, a major financial adjustment called the crash somewhere down the road, just like we had in the um, early 30s with the beginning of the Great Depression, where a lot of the distortions uh, built up during the 20s were were. Uh, had to go by the wayside because they were everything was inflated we have the same problem we have today but on a much larger scale uh so is it inevitable no but there's a high probability that we're going to have to have a major readjustment and the key jim which i learned more than 40 50 years ago is that the dollar the value of the dollar is the key because if foreigners decide to dump the dollar decide to dump treasury securities then Interest rates go through the roof, the value of the dollar declines, inflation go, goes to a runaway status, and we could have more price controls, more capital controls, more um, uh, import-export controls. That's where we're headed, Jim. Are we going to get there? There's a, Like I said, uh, the chances are greater than 50-50, I think, because the toolkit that the, uh, that the politicians have is to control, command and control, as you pointed out, 
It's not to have a free economy. And so the other thing I think is going to happen, and I said this in my farewell address at Ramapo uh, in October 2019, is I think the country is going to break up into different uh, states, like the Soviet Union broke up into different countries uh, in the next 50 years. Because I think it's too tenuous to hold on to a country where there are so many different cultural values uh, around America. That, uh, I think we're going to end it right then and there. Murray, this has been great. we got to keep in uh, closer touch here. Absolutely, Uh, Jim. It's been great, and we're going to cut it right there. I'm going to take this off record. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system or transmitted in any any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen.